Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 19, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Okay, we got a sermon today, uh, Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11. And this is entitled Bezalel and Aholiath. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make you make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and the sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. The contents of today's passage are significantly different than that which we've seen for quite a while. Instead of directions to make things or to perform certain tasks, the focus here will be on those who are going to do the actual work. In particular, and by name, the Lord has selected two men who will be in charge of seeing that it gets done. In calling them by name, it indicates that he is both aware of their capabilities and that he will use them in pictures of Christ. Were this not so, then there would be no need to name them. Many others are noted as helping out in the tasks, but their names aren't given. However, none of them are unknown to God. Though we will look at the details of the passage from a historical and a literal perspective, and also from a perspective which points to Christ, we shouldn't overlook the moral and the personal characteristics of these verses. The Lord is having a sanctuary built. It requires materials, instructions, leaders, workers, time, energy, and so on. Every detail of this process demonstrates a need to be fulfilled. Jesus said this during his ministry, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet those who come against him with 20,000? 
It is unfathomable to think that the Lord would direct Moses to build this sanctuary and not have calculated every detail of it that could be met. Everything. Each person who participated in whatever way was a part of what the Lord had already figured into the job. If this is so, with an earthly sanctuary that was to take up a very limited amount of space and which would take less than one year to complete, how much more carefully do you think the Lord has considered every part and every detail of his heavenly sanctuary of which we are a part? As this is so, and as you are a part of that equation, if you have called on Christ, then it means that the Lord knows you intimately. He is using you exactingly, and he will complete his good work in you perfectly. Considering that the workers of the tabernacle could have made little flaws in their work and not said anything about it, such as maybe scratching a piece of wood and saying, that's going to be covered over by gold anyway. I really don't need to sand it down. It means that the Lord allowed the workers to decide the quality of their work. If Moses or one of the men that is mentioned today did not approve of what was handed to them, they could refuse it. Instead, they could throw it out, they could burn it, they could use it for something else or whatever. But they decided what was acceptable and what was not. And the same is true with us. The Lord will look at our work for him and he will decide whether it was worthy of reward or whether it will be burned up. It is up to us how we conduct our duties for his coming kingdom. For this reason, I have to tell myself quite often, and I tell the Lord this as well, what I am doing right now counts forever. You should have that same attitude. Let yourselves be used up for the Lord now, because when we stand before him, it will all have been well worth it. Our text verse for today comes from Proverbs chapter 8. It's verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. Jobs need to be done, and if they are important to the Lord's plans, they will, in fact, get done. We have a very little church here at the Superior Word, but there are jobs that do need to get done. To me, some days are almost overwhelming, and I'll, I'll be honest about that. There are days where I just think I can't take it, but apparently the load is what I am to be given. If I couldn't take it and the job didn't get done, it would either mean that it was not a needed part of the Lord's plans or that the Lord was ready to send someone else to help in those tasks, as he has done many times. He sent Sergio into my life, and Sergio takes care of things. He sent the website guy into my life, and he takes care of things. He sends a guy in to give us the musical introduction for our sermons, and each person here has helped out in one way or another. The Lord has put us together for a reason. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, When God has any special work to be accomplished, he always raises up instruments capable of, of doing it. I would hope the things we are doing at the Superior Word are a part of his plans. And I would also hope that the Lord will raise up helping instruments for some of the tasks that need to be done as they arise. When they walk through the door, it'll be a welcome relief. Until then, use me up, Lord. This life is yours, and each one of us should have that same attitude. This is the moral lesson that I would like to give you today. Have this attitude. Christ is coming soon enough. Now, let's get into the literal and pictorial aspects of today's passage, which are all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, our first thought today is Bezalel. It's verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Vedaber Yehovah el Moshe lemor, and spoke Yehovah to Moses, saying, this is now a new thought which is introduced into the discourse, and so the words are offset from what is to come. Moses has his pen out, and he's awaiting a new set of instructions from the Lord. Likewise, as the recipients of the word, we are being prepared for something and are being asked to get ready for that as well. The chapter is going to be logically divided into three sections. The first is in verses 1 through 11, which we're going to look at today. This will be followed by verses 12 through 17, and finally, a closing thought concerning this most important time on the mountain will be given in verse 18. Verse 2, see, I have called by name. In the Bible, it is a high honor when the Lord calls someone by name. It indicates that they have been chosen for a specific reason and to perform a particular task or mission. This is especially so in regards to redemptive history. 
In Isaiah chapter 43, the Lord told the people of Israel that he had called them by name and for his sovereign purposes in the conduct of redemptive history. Two chapters later, he says the same thing, believe it or not, about a pagan king, Cyrus, who the Lord called by name in order to fulfill his will concerning Israel's release so that redemptive history could continue on the course that was purposed by the Lord. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Here in Exodus, after the Lord has given all of the many details concerning the gifts of the people, the design of the sanctuary, including the tabernacle and its furniture, the courtyard, the garments for the priesthood, and the making of the special anointing oil and the holy incense, the Lord is calling someone by name for a particular purpose, and that person is, verse 2 continues, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. The name Bezalel is formed of three parts. The L at the end means God. The B or B at the beginning signifies in. And the middle part comes from the noun cell, which means shadow. Thus, his name means in the shadow of God. As shade is considered a protection in the Bible, such as from the heat of the sun, it is considered a metaphor for in the protection of God. This idea of the shadow being protection is seen several times in Scripture, such as these memorable words from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. It is even used to speak of the Lord Himself, such as in Psalm 121, where it says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He is the son of Uri, this Bezalel, the son of Uri, whose name means something like either my light or you have or and then the I is my possessive, my light or light of Jehovah. The I could be indicating the first letter of the divine name. The name of Uri's father is Hur, which means white. This is Hur, who was already seen in Exodus 17, along with Moses and Aaron atop the hill during the battle with Amalek. There he was. He was also mentioned in Exodus 24 as being left in charge of the camp along with Aaron when Moses ascended the mountain to receive the law. Although not in the Bible, Flavius Josephus says that Hur was the husband of Miriam and thus Bezalel would be the son of Moses' nephew. If so, then the Lord is keeping the authority of the camp and the making of the sacred implements very close in regards to relationship with Moses. This Bezalel is considered so important to the artistic work of the sanctuary that he is mentioned first by Moses in the calling of the people to their tasks in Exodus 35 and 36, but he's even mentioned alone as some of the separate portions of the work are accomplished in Exodus 37. Bezalel and his contribution to Jewish culture is regarded in such high honor, even to this day, that Israel's national school of art is named after him. It is the Bezalel Academy of Arts and Designs, which was established in 1906, making it the oldest institution of higher education in all of Israel. It is located at the Mount Scopus campus of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. In the personal naming of Bezalel as the chief builder, all grounds for any type of discontent or jealousy would be removed. Nobody could feel that they had been overlooked despite the merits that they possessed. And with the amount of labor to be done, it is certain that anyone with suitable ability would have had plenty of opportunity to show his skills under the authority of Bezalel. Verse 2 continues, of the tribe of Judah. Le Mate Yehuda. Mate means a rod or a staff. 
It was first used in the Bible in Genesis chapter 38 when Tamar asked for Judah's mate, his staff, as a pledge of future payment for services rendered. There it said these words, So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Then he said, I will give you a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your mate, your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. After that, it became a very common word in Exodus as Moses' mate, or staff, was used to work the many miracles for the Lord and against Pharaoh, leading up to and including all of the time of the Exodus. However, This is the first time that the word mate is used of a tribe rather than a physical staff. To understand the connection, a staff is something used for chastening and for correction, as a symbol of rule, and as something that one would lean on for support. Therefore, the staff of Judah symbolizes those things in the tribe which issue from him. He is their support. He is their line of rule and their authority for chastening as well. Therefore, his staff symbolizes the tribe of people who descend from him. The staff is even figuratively used as the support of life itself, and thus it is used to speak of bread. Hence, we get the basis of the old expression, bread is the staff of life. As you read through the Bible, what you should do is think on how this word, mate, or staff, or tribe, is used in relation to both the tribe of Judah and the one who descended from Judah, but from whom Judah originally came, meaning Christ the Lord. Bezalel is specifically the seventh in the line from Judah. In his line, his genealogy reads, Bezalel, Uri his father, Hur his grandfather, Caleb, Hezron, Perez, and Judah. Verse 3, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. The term male, or fill, was used in the directions for the consecration of Aaron and his sons. The term was specifically, fill the hand. It meant that they would be set apart as acceptable concerning the offerings which filled their hands from the people and then to the Lord. Thus, the term fill the hand indicated their acceptability and hence their consecration. Now the term is used again concerning Bezalel. He is said to be filled with the Ruach Elohim or the Spirit of God. This means that his work will be acceptable concerning the things which are required for him to accomplish. A question arises concerning this verse, though, as to whether this was a direct infusion of the Spirit of God or if it was simply who he was as a person created by God. It's a lot more sensational to speculate that he was especially infused with the Spirit, but that has to be read into this as much as the opposite view. Looking at it as an external filling also gives those who lean to the charismatic side of the church a chance to claim that they are also somehow externally filled with the Spirit of God. But when Paul instructs believers in the New Testament to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the word is passive. It is not active. It is God who fills, not us. So how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? The answer is by yielding ourselves to God. Bezalel, and indeed all who are filled with the Spirit, are filled by God as they yield to him. Therefore, it is more than probable that the gifts which Bezalel possessed were used in this way. They were passively used. He was expressing himself through his workmanship by the Spirit of God, which already dwelt in him because of his creation, how he was created. As James says in the New Testament, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Like Bezalel, we all have gifts which are unique. Our makeup and indeed all things originally stem from God. He has filled us all with wisdom according to his purposes. What we do with it will either glorify him or it will not. But the intelligence and wisdom that we have all certainly came from him. If he supplemented Bezalel directly through external inspiration, that was his prerogative to do so. But if he simply chose this guy, knowing that his makeup was such that he could accomplish all of these tasks, it doesn't diminish his hand in the process at all. Bezalel was a son of Adam, who was created by God, just as we all are. He submitted to God's will in order to accomplish the tasks set before him. We too have the ability to perform wonderful things. 
When those things are done to glorify the Lord, they find a true purpose that is lacking in any other such endeavors. Verse 3 continues, in wisdom. The word is kochmah, and it was first seen in Exodus 28, verse 3. Here's what it said there. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of kochmah, wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. The word signifies wisdom in a good sense. It is a common word, but it is used a great deal in the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It refers to understanding which is rightly applied in a wise, prudent, or beneficial way. Verse 3 continues, in understanding. The word is tebuna. It indicates discretion, reason, skillfulness, understanding, and wisdom. Again, it is mostly used in Proverbs, and it indicates an ability to comprehend. A man may read a sentence and understand its surface meaning, but he may not comprehend the deeper meaning that goes along with it, such as in a pun or an idiom. There were a bunch of pillows at the store. I got one, but my wife got the rest. Verse 3 continues, in knowledge. Oh, you got it. Here we go. Verse 3 continues. The word is da'at. It was first seen in Genesis 2, verse 9, when speaking of the tree of the knowledge, the da'at of good and evil. It indicates knowledge in the general sense. One is either aware of something or they are not. If they are, then they can use that for understanding even in wisdom. In this, we can think of empirical, experiential, or experimental knowledge. Verse 3 continues, and in all manner of workmanship. The word is melaha. It is the same as the word malak or angel. It thus signifies employment in a task or a job, but never in a servile way. Rather, it would be in an industry or an occupation. Just as an angel or a messenger has his duty to carry out, this indicates the ability to accomplish the task at hand by employing the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom that one possesses. In these aspects of workmanship, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, we again see Bezalel as a type of Christ who possesses the Holy Spirit without measure and in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze. The first category is lachshov machashavot, hard for me to say. The words come from the same root and carry the idea of considering or contemplating. In other words, it could be paraphrased to think out thoughts or to prepare proportions or to devise devices or to create constructions or to sculpt schemes, maybe to wisely work works or to fashion forms and so on. Thus, to design artistic works, as the New King James Version translates it, fits the description very well. These would be those which needed to be shaped according to the instructions of Moses based on the patterns that he was given. These would be in metals for each which was specified, the gold for those which were to be gold, the silver for those designated as silver, and the bronze for those which were called to be bronze. John Gill says something that I want to read you, and I often do this. I'll take a comment from a very famous commentator, and he is one of the best, and he'll say something that is completely wrong. And I do this so that you understand never to trust commentaries or even Charlie Garrett's sermons until you have checked things out for yourself. Here's what John Gill says. It is not to be supposed that there were either goldsmiths or braziers among the Israelites, only masons and bricklayers and brickmasters and such sort of manufacturers. Well, that's an assumption that is based on absolutely no facts at all. Just because the people were noted as brickmakers in the early Exodus account doesn't mean that all of them were brickmakers. Nor does it mean that the people didn't do other jobs on their own time. Somebody may lay bricks during the day and go home and do goldsmithing. Nor does it mean that there was not this vast multitude of people that came out with Israel, which is clearly recorded in the Bible. They met the requirements of Exodus 12, verse 48, and they were included into the corporate body of Israel. And they are a part of that people, and they may have had those skills on hand in order to do these things. The Lord has already said in chapter 28 that the people that were coming out had such skills. And in fact, they would be available to do these tasks. So be careful when you read commentaries and don't just assume that they're right. Think what you read through 
And better yet, don't read most commentaries because we've discussed this in Bible classes. Most commentaries are so shallow and they're so misdirected that they actually take you away from what the Bible is trying to tell you. But I would like you all to always read the footnotes. Thank you. If there's one thing I teach people in Bible classes, it's always to read the footnotes because that is where the meat is. If that Bible has footnotes, they're in there for a reason. Be careful with commentaries. Verse 5, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. The word for both cutting and carving here is the same. It is haroshet. In this noun form, it's only found four times here and twice again in Exodus 35. It indicates mechanical work such as carved or cut. And despite being a noun, almost every translator makes it a verb. Here it says in carving wood, but that's not, it should say carved, okay? Something that is already carved, it's a noun. Several commentators note that instead of carving wood, it should read cutting wood. The pulpit commentary says this, the word is the same as that used of the stones and no ornamental carving of the woodwork was prescribed. Once again, this may not be correct. Unless the horns of the altar were very basic in form, there was carving done on them. Also, there is no reason to assume that the actual pattern that Moses was shown didn't include other carved details as well. It may very well be that all of the wood was cut only, but that cannot be known for sure. In the shadow of God, I find my rest. There under his wings, all of my troubles cease. I am safe and secure, no longer oppressed. I have found safe refuge and a place of peace. Here I will stay, I have found my home, under his wings where all my troubles cease. Never from this safety will I roam, here in this place I have found my peace. Thank you, O God, for Christ, my rest. Because of him, all my troubles now cease. In this home I am more than just a temporary guest. Here in this home, and as a son, I have found eternal peace. Our second thought today is Aholiav. That's verses 6 through 11. Verse 6, and I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiav, the son of Ahisamach. By name, the Lord chose a second person to perform the necessary tasks required for this overall job. His name is Aholiav. The name comes from Av, which means father, and Ohel, which means tent. Therefore, the name means father's tent. The word ohel is used to describe the tent of meeting, which has been noted time and time and time again over these last many chapters that we've gone through. It is not a coincidence that the names Bezalel and Aholiav are so similar in meaning. Bezalel means in the shadow of God, and Aholiav means father's tent. When considering Christ, the two names come more clearly into focus. However, the name Aholiav has a secondary meaning, the word ahal. It's used one time in the Bible, in Job 25, verse 5, and it means to shine. Thus, the secondary meaning of his name is father's shine. Considering that the name of Bezalel's father is Uri, or my light, we have either an amazing coincidence or we are being shown a picture because both speak of the father's radiance. This Aholiav is the son of Ahisamach. His name means my brother has supported. Verse 6 continues, of the tribe of Dan. It is of note that this person is of the tribe of Dan, as was the main artificer for the Temple of Solomon, which is going to be built many, many hundreds of years later. We see this in 2 Chronicles 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, And now I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Huram, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. And his father was a man of Tyre, skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, fine linen and crimson, and to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. Verse 6 continues, And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all of the gifted artisans. The Hebrew here literally reads, In the hearts of all the wise-hearted, I have put wisdom. Again, it appears that the wisdom that they possess was already possessed by them. It was there because God designed it to be there when he designed them. This fits perfectly with the idea brought out in the words of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. When he was given his commission, we read this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. 
there's no need to assume that this wisdom that we're looking at today came at the time of their appointment in the stream of time, but rather it was a wisdom that they possessed at the time of their appointment by God in his eternal mind and which was given to them at their time of birth. Verse 6 continues, that they may make all that I have commanded you. All of the people, those named and those who are unnamed, are filled with the wisdom necessary to accomplish all of the tasks that the Lord has laid down for Moses to fulfill. Verse 7, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all of the furniture of the tabernacle. Although the details of the ark were given first, the tent, not the tabernacle, this word in this verse should say tent, is mentioned first here. The word for tent is ohel, and it is the same word as the root of the name Aholioth. It is, again, not a coincidence that he was introduced into the verse preceding this one. A stress is being laid on the word tent for us to consider. Only after the tent is named is the ark and its mercy seat detailed. These are found in the most holy place. From there, all of the furniture of the tent is named next. Verse 8, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense. These are the three implements which are found in the holy place, east of the veil. The table of showbread was on the north of the room, the menorah was opposite on the south, and the altar of incense was further west before the veil. The word used to describe the lampstand here is tahor. It means pure. And it is the same adjective used to describe the gold of the ark, the mercy seat, and so on. However, only this item here is called tahor, okay? None of the others are. And therefore, it is probably not speaking about the nature of the gold itself that is used in the making of it, but it's rather being used to describe its function, which is its resplendent brightness. Verse 9, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the laver and its base. These are the two bronze items which were located in the courtyard itself. The altar was furthest east by the entrance, and the laver was further west, closer to the tent. Verse 10, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Two most enigmatic words are introduced here into the Bible. Big day hasarad translated as the garments of ministry. The New King James Version brushes over them by ignoring the next word in the Hebrew, which is and. In other words, it reads the garments of ministry and the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons. By ignoring the and, it makes it look like the second clause is simply explaining the first, but it is not. These big day hasarad are only mentioned four times and all are in this same context. One possibility is that the term is speaking first of Aaron's garments alone. It is then followed by an explanation of the garments which belong to him and his sons alike. But this doesn't really explain the and between the clauses. Another explanation is that they are the coverings which will be placed over the sacred things when they are transported from place to place. Those are described in Numbers chapter 4. This is very likely because they are described with the same word, beged, just because they have not yet been detailed doesn't mean that they can't be now noted. On several occasions, we've already seen other things mentioned in advance of their details. For this reason, I would personally go with this explanation, is that these big day hasarad are actually things that cover, like the Ark of the Covenant, when they're walking. These were never seen by the people. They were The tent was taken down, everything was arranged, they put these coverings, these big day hasarad over them, and then they were carried by the priests to the next location. Then the tent was put up, it was carried into the tent, and it was uncovered, and the people never, never saw these things. And the reason why I stress this is because you see pictures of like the people going around the walls of Jericho, blowing their trumpets, and the walls are about to fall down, and you see them carrying the Ark of the Covenant, right? And there it is. No. They never would have seen it. It would have been completely covered from the eyes of the people. So when you see those depictions, put an X through them and go to another depiction, okay? <laughs> Verse 11. And the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place. The last two items mentioned before this chapter are noted now and in the same order. If you remember, and that was just last week, every detail of everything that we saw there and in all of these past 20 sermons concerning the implements has pictured Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. The number probably reaches above a thousand, and I don't think that's stretching it by any 
any bit, okay? I think we probably have more than a thousand pictures of Christ that we have dug out of this tabernacle which is going to be built, all prefiguring what God is going to do in his own son in redemptive history. All of this is now instructed to be made, verse 11 finishes with these words, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Moses' notebook has got to be full of notes. He has been given extremely detailed instructions, and they have followed amazing patterns of intricacy and design. The wisdom behind the words is reflective of the wisdom of God in Christ. Receiving and analyzing these instructions of these many past chapters, which were given to Moses, has personally, and I mean this sincerely, been one of the most memorable experiences of my entire life. Because when I started these, you might think, oh, Charlie sure knows what he's talking about. I had no idea. It's just studying and asking the Lord, what are you saying about this? And what is this picturing? And then you read a commentary on one of these obscure words and somebody says, well, this could mean this. And all of a sudden the light comes on and you say, that picture's this. Why is the word pure used on the ark and the mercy seat, but it's not on the, the rings and on the poles? Every single thing has had a reason. And until we started this, I was on the same journey as you. You just get the boring part of listening to me give it to you. But I had the fun part of sitting there week after week and going through this, and I have been so blessed. I thank the Lord for everything that he has shown us. And the commentators, I have to get qualify this, many commentators of past ages who have spent the time and understood the Hebrew and the Greek and all of the nuances of the Bible in order to, you know, I'm the, I'm the recipient of their, their hard work. And when I take out the garbage at the mall, I'll quite often say to the Lord, thank you for Albert Barnes. Thank you for Adam Clark. Thank you for John Gill, these people, Charles Ellicott, and these people that have gone and they've studied these things. And they'll just make an obscure comment, and all of a sudden the picture comes true, which I would never have known before. So thank you, Lord, for these people. I will dwell with the Lord for all eternity. Here in his tent I have found my home at peace and at rest by the glassy sea. Never shall I from this marvelous spot roam. In the tent of my father, no cares can be found. I am at peace in this spot, dwelling in his glory, listening to the marvelous, beautiful sound of the eternally unfolding, matchless story. In my father's tent, all my troubles have ceased. I am at peace in this place Christ has prepared for me. And with the redeemed, from the greatest to the least, here we will dwell for all eternity. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. As soon as the introduction was made, the Lord noted that he had called Bezalel. His name means, as I said, in the shadow of God. Thus, it is the place of closeness, fellowship, and protection. This is seen, for example, in Psalm 63, 7, which just happened to be what you read at Doris's house on our mission work yesterday. Because you have been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. The shadow of the wings indicates being right up against the body of the bird, covered by it and protected by it. That, in turn, describes Jesus, who is described in the same close relation to the Father. Here's what it says. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John 1.18. There he rests in the shadow or the close relation to his Father. Bezalel is next said to be the son of Uri. Uri, as noted, means either my light or light of Jehovah. In the context here, they both have the same end signification, that of Jesus, the light of the world. The same wording of the name Uri, or my light, is used by David when speaking of the Lord in the 27th Psalm. Here's what it says. The Lord is my light, Uri, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? After naming Uri, his father, Hor, is then mentioned. The name means white. In Exodus 17, he pictured Christ the king. The same picture is given again. Each name is intended to show us Christ. He is the king. He is the light. And he is the one who is in the bosom of his father. Finally, it is said that he is from the staff or the tribe of Judah. The line was specifically selected to show us types of Christ, who likewise descended from this royal tribe of Judah. Judah means praise. Thus again, it shows us Christ, the one who brings God praise through his work. This is made explicit in Hebrews chapter 2 with these words. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. 
Next, Bezalel was said to be filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. Isaiah could not have made a more perfect match of this to the coming Christ. Here's what he says about him in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Paul follows up with a similar but a shorter description of Christ in the New Testament, where he says this in 1 Corinthians 1, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This workmanship that Bezalel was endowed with was in order to build the Lord's sanctuary, his dwelling place, his temple. This is an exact type of Christ who likewise is the one to build the Lord's temple. This is noted in both testaments of the Bible, such as first in Zechariah chapter 6. It says, Behold the man who is the branch, whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It's also seen in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. In these verses, Bezalel, or in the shadow of God, of the tribe of Judah, all picturing Jesus, is called by name to show us a most fitting picture of the coming Christ. After this, the many materials were noted. Each, as we have seen in previous sermons, pictures Christ, the gold, his deity, his divine glory. Here's what it says in John 17:5. And now, O Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The silver pictures his work of redemption. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The bronze, his judgment, first judgment on sin, which is in 2 Corinthians 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we employ you, implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, and also of judgment of sin, which is from 2 Timothy 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. The stones to be cut, as we saw, signify the mediatorial role of Christ. They were to be on the shoulders and on the breastplate of the high priest. The true stone is Christ, mentioned throughout Scripture as the stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. We are thus the lesser stones supported by him through his role as our intercessor and our mediator to God. In all, five specific materials are mentioned here, gold, silver, bronze, stones, and wood. Five is the number of, anybody? I say it week after week, grace. Five is the number of grace. It thus signifies the grace of God in the building of the temple, prefigured by the artisopher Bezalel. After this, Aholiab was introduced. His name means father's tent. This is speaking of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as is seen in the words of John from John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt. The word is tabernacled or tented among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. However, the name also has a secondary meaning of Father's shine. Thus, it signifies the glory of the Father. He again is a type of Christ. The glory of the Father is revealed in the glory of the Son. This is seen in the book of Hebrews, where it speaks of Christ in relation to the Father, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. As I said earlier, the two names, Bezalel and Aholiab, are both connected in two special ways. The first is that Bezalel means in the shadow of God, and Aholiab means Father's tent. They are showing us a picture of Christ, who is the one who resides in the Godhead with the Father. 
but even more, both names are connected directly to the radiance of the father. Bezalel's father is Uri, or my light, and Aholiav has the secondary meaning of father's shine. Both names are given to show us that the glory of God the Father shines or radiates out in the light of Christ. And this can be no mistake. Aholiav was next noted as the son of Ahisamach, which means my brother has supported. This is reflected in the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. He is his brother's support. Notice that the name of Ahisamach's father is not given. Instead of three generations like Bezalel, only two are given here. This shows us that the Lord uses names only when they will make a type of Christ for us to see. Aholiab is said to be from Dan. Dan means judge. The sanctuary being built isn't just a place of praising God, as the name Judah implies. It is also a place of judgment, as the name Dan implies. Both purposes are seen in the selection of these two men. Further, the two tribes being noted are not without another very important meaning. When the tribes broke down and moved from place to place, they always broke down in a specific order. Judah always traveled first, and Dan always traveled last. This is seen in Numbers chapter 10. The standard of the camp and the children of Judah set out first. That's Numbers 10, 14. Then the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps, set out according to their armies, Numbers 10, 25. The two men from the two tribes shows the totality of the work of Christ from beginning to end and everything which is in between. All of God's people are included in the work of Bezalel and Aholiav, and all of God's people are included in the grouping from Judah to Dan. Not one is missing. The two sets represent the whole. In Christ, praise forever goes first because judgment forever goes behind. Think of that. Your judgment goes behind you. You called on Christ and it is done. But your praise of God should ever go before you. Always. Keep that in mind. The pictures are being made for us to understand. After the naming of Aholiav, the words that they may make all that I have commanded you are given. This is followed up with a list of all of the implements for the tent and outside of the tent. Each of these has been described in detail. If you remember, each one of them pictured Christ minutely. Following the naming of those things, a second admonition is given. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. These two men, picturing Christ and his work in such specific detail, were to do everything according to the word of the Lord. This is perfectly reflected in Jesus' words of John chapter 6. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Christ performed the task which was set before him according to all that he was given to do, and he did it perfectly. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, we have all been given tasks as well, or we have the opportunity to assume tasks that need to be done. When we go about these things, let us say, not my will, O Lord Jesus, but your will be done. Let us allow the Lord to use us up now so that he can lavish wonderful rewards upon us in the future. Let us do this to the glory of God and in the spirit of honoring the greater work already being accomplished through the giving of his son for us. And lastly, if you've never taken the step of receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord, you really need to get that done now. Eternity is forever and we will all spend it somewhere. In Christ, it is a very good end. Without him, not so much. Let me tell you what you need to know. This whole picture, everything that we've seen for these past many, many, many chapters and verses picturing this tabernacle are simply giving us a picture of Christ to come and all of the things that he would do for the people of the world. He would die and his blood would cover over our sins, pictured in the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And inside of that Ark are the two tablets of the law. He embodies the law that we can never meet, right? And because he embodies the law and because he died, the law is covered over. Our sins in violation of that law are covered over. And then each implement all the way through, each piece of cloth, each piece of metal, every single thing is pictured the work of Christ. God is trying to show us that there is nothing, nothing that we can do to get ourselves any closer to God. He's done all of it for us. 
He's done every single thing for us. So why would we even try? Instead, the Bible asks us to do something so simple that most people, as we talked about yesterday at Mission Work, just stumble over it. He asks us to have faith. Faith that what Jesus Christ did for us, pictured in that tabernacle and which was realized on the cross of Calvary, is sufficient to save us. And if we go about trying to work our way to heaven, we've got an infinite climb to do it and we'll never make it when he's already given us everything, everything suitable to get us there. So I would ask you today to think on that and then to do what the Bible says, to call on Jesus Christ as Savior. Ask him to wash you of your sins, cleanse you, and he will lead you to eternal life. It's guaranteed. It's done. It's behind you. Judgment is behind you. And forever praise will go before you as you behold the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And you see the radiance of the Father being directed through him for all eternity. Ceaseless, endless, boundless eternity. And speaking to you directly who may already be saved because I've told the people how to get saved is calling Jesus. I'd like to speak to you all individually. Every single person here has a work that they can do today. And every person here has a work that they can do tomorrow and every day for the Lord. And are you going to waste your time just coming to church only on Sunday morning and saying, well, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm set. I'm going to heaven. Everything that we do is going to be credited to us either for reward or for loss. Every time we have a relationship that we end because I'm not satisfied with the way my daughter is living her life or I'm not satisfied the way my husband is living his life. When we end that, the Lord will judge us for it. Instead, he wants us to make reconciliation through those things. And when we have a job that we do, are we going to go to our job and just hide Jesus? Or are we going to let our light shine enough that they say, I want to know what that person knows? You may not be able to speak about Jesus out loud in your job, but you can sure let Jesus shine through you until somebody comes and says, why are you always so happy? All of these things will be counted as rewards because you're demonstrating faith in God's provision of Christ pictured in these many sermons of the tabernacle and of Christ who died on the cross to lead us back to himself. Please think about eternity. It counts right now. Right now counts forever. Everything that we do. So I love to see Jim show up every week. I mean, I can't get rid of the guy. He started coming out to mission work and he keeps coming. Well, praise the Lord because he's doing something for the Lord. And every person here can do that as well. Don't mean to beat that to death, but it's being pictured in these two guys today and it's something for us to consider. There you go. Anyway, our closing verse today comes from 2 Corinthians 4, it's verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. Next week is Exodus uh, 31, 12 through 18. It is for the end of the week's path. It's entitled the law of the Sabbath. That'll be our 88th Exodus sermon. And as I say each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so what you need to do is to follow him and to trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you. And as I say from time to time and through you, it's not just that he's doing good stuff for you guys. You can do good stuff in his name because he's working through you. Once again, pictured in today's verses, let him do good things through you. Our poem today is called Bezalel and Aholiath. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words that he was relaying. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he has been called by name by me. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding in knowledge too. And in all manner of workmanship, there are many things for me he shall do to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze also, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. It is so. And I, indeed, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, special wisdom according to each man, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, so shall it be, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, as directed by me, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, all of these, the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense for a sweet burning aroma, me to please, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, as you know, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, let it be so. 
and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, yes, before my face, and the, anoint, the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, these are the things they shall do. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful detail we see. Every word is precious for us to ponder, and all of it points to Jesus ever so marvelously. Thank you for sharing with us such splendid wonder. Hear our thanks as we praise you for all our days. Forever and ever we shall sing to you with joyous praise. Hallelujah and amen. And before I pray us out, I'd like to uh, say something that just came to mind, and I should have said it earlier, but um, Sergio tells me he is online every uh, Sunday with Rhoda, and um, they also watch the Bible studies, and he says that there are about 50 or so people that are there at any given time, and he says 15 or 20 of them are always there, and they talk to each other, and they pray with each other, and he says they send each other information, and I would like them to know, because I know I'm looking at this screen, but they're actually up there. I'd like you all to know, I didn't really realize this. I knew the people came and went, and I know some people watch the YouTube videos, but I had no idea that you were actually consistent in coming to this church and being a part of it. And so while we're taking the Lord's Supper today, I'd like you to know that I'll be thinking of you today and from every day forward, because it means a great deal to me to know that you are a part of this church. And so thank you. And I know every person here thinks that as well, because you've seen how small we are. And we love the Lord's Word, and it's so refreshing to know that there are other people out there that know the Lord's Word as well. Love the Lord's Word as well. And you're willing to put up with all of my mumblings and fumblings. I'm the most tongue-twisted guy I know on the face of the planet. But I will tell you this. All you people don't know this because you watch these sermons live, but I go home and Sergio got me a video editor that it can edit out. It makes me look like a really good preacher. Oh, man. And not only does it get rid of all the, the, the tongue twistings, but he's got what's called a morph cut. And so if I'm looking here and I say something, and then I say something over here and I cut all that out, it morphs the two together. So you can't even tell that I even jumped in the picture. It is beautiful. So I look like the greatest preacher on the earth in those videos, but you people, you know different. So I appreciate that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful congregation and those that are out there that are so faithful to attend week after week, which I just didn't really comprehend until he told me that this just yesterday. And uh, I know there were people there, and you know I just didn't know that they were steady and faithful, and that just blesses my heart, and I know it blesses everybody here. And we want to thank you for that, that this church can have a difference or make a difference in people's lives, even in other parts of the world, different countries or throughout the United States. It just That touches me to no end, and I am so grateful for that, so thankful for it. And uh, I thank you that uh, you have just blessed us so abundantly, each one of us. We all have our health and we have our families and we have our little pets that we love. And Lord, if you take all of that away from us today, give us just enough strength to praise your name. And I know that we will be satisfied with that. We may not like it, but we will be satisfied with it because praising you is what we are about. We love you, we love your word, and we cherish what you did for us when you sent Jesus to die on the cross of Calvary. Thank you for that. And we love you and we praise you in his beautiful name. Amen. Okay, we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, there, Paul writes these wonderful words. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over that bread. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem, Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he would have taken the cup after supper, and he would have blessed it. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam Borei Peri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
Let me read something to you before we uh, before we take the Lord's Supper. I'll read you this. Ephesians. We're going through Ephesians right now in the daily study. And I said this, I think, during the uh, Bible class. And uh, Paul is writing, and he says, um, where do you say this? Give me just a second to make sure the fellowship and the boldness reading. Okay. He says, um, I'll start in uh, Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. He stops. He doesn't know what to say anymore. He just stops. He says, the, with an article, the length and width and length, and width, length, depth, and height. And he says, it's infinite. God is infinite. And so he just stops and he says, I don't know what to say about this anymore. Most people tie that in with the next clause, which says um, to know the love of Christ. But that's not what he's speaking about. He's just trying to get us to understand the infinite nature of God. And then he says, because he can't, he knows he can't explain it. He says to know the love of Christ, which passes all understanding. So he contradicts himself to know something that we can't understand. He's in awe of the marvel and the mystery of God in Christ. And then he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, you're finite, folks. You're teeny little specks in the universe. And he asks you to be filled with all the fullness of God. And so, as I said in my commentary, think of a bellows. And it pulls in wind. And you just keep pumping and you keep pumping and you keep pumping that wind forever and you'll never exhaust it. And God asks us to just continuously be filled with the infinite knowledge of God. It'll never happen, but that is what we're here for. And that's what these things are picturing. That's why we're here in this church. Isn't to play church and to have an easy sermon about how everything's going to be good next week. It's to learn about the infinite nature of God who came and dwelt among us. Because someday we're going to see what this actually pictures. And we're going to wonder why did I spend all my time doing stupid things? Do you see how glorious Jesus Christ is? I know that these sermons are complicated, and some of you go home probably with a headache. Think of me on Monday. Man, I got a headache that lasts until Tuesday. But this is the marvel of Jesus Christ. I can't believe it. And that's what you were saying when you were giving us our, your commentary at the beginning. You were talking about what that guy said, and that first came to my mind, is that the infinite nature of what God has done and I can't explain it. So I'm going to go on to the infinite love of Christ, which I want you to understand. And then he says, and then I want you to know the infinite fullness of God when you're finite. What a God we serve. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Send Jan and my regards. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so good to have you guys here. Thank the Lord. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, say a special prayer of safe travels for Sergio and Rhoda. Say go back home today, and as they travel to Israel. And I would ask that they would be a light in Israel to the people that they've committed to talking to, and that hearts would be turned, and that they would come to know the love of God in Christ. Even if they can only stand it, and just in infinitesimally small way it's enough to fill all of eternity and so i would pray that that those people there would hear this word and that he would be bold about speaking it and lord thank you for each person here and i would ask that each one of them would this week make a commitment to talk to somebody about the lord whether it's out at a restaurant or just leaving a track if they're too shy to actually say so just give them the heart to remember the infinite infinite majesty that we are proclaiming and the only chance to be reconciled to you which is through his shed blood. Help us to be bold in that and to make that proclamation and not to worry about offending others. Who cares? Who cares, Lord? We love you and our, our duty is to you. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen.